0: Well done for coming everyone. particularly on a baking hot day like this, but I think we've we've got ourselves the wind tunnel here, so we'll be we'll be fine temperature wise um i'm i I love teaching on this topic because I think it's well a couple of things i think it's it's a, such an overlooked topic um for a number of western churches I think it can be incredibly overlooked I think for a number of western churches it can be almost I know, obsessed about in an unhelpful way kind of you could end up with loads of charts of exactly what u.s president is going to be around when christ returns but i think for from my experience of my my church background and i'd imagine a a number of us here it may be that this is a topic which feels like it's not always spoken about much or that it's a bit confusing um and i think there's probably a couple of reasons for that i think one is that the idea of the end times i think can sometimes just freak us out a bit so if we're not in the Uh, over-obsessive extreme, then very often what you'll find is people will react against it by thinking we don't want to go down the speculative path, so we're not going to really talk about it at all. Um, But I think another thing, I think another reason we don't really talk about it that much is I think by and large we are probably quite comfortable in this life. From a global point of view I think we don't actually suffer as much as the vast majority of humanity has for the vast majority of history. And so the prospect that one day we won't suffer and everything will be better is perhaps only really hugely appealing when we go through really difficult times and it's not always something that's necessarily on the front of our mind. Whereas for the early church, this was always on the front of their mind. They were on the edge of their seats waiting for the day that Christ would return. Um, And so I think what I wanna do today is just hopefully demystify the whole of the end time things a little bit because it's not some obscure strange thing that only a few qualified people that God has spoken to directly can understand actually the basics of what happens at the end end times um, and what happens when Christ returns is actually pretty clear in the New Testament um, and it's important that we focus on what's clear rather than on certain things that actually we could end up speculating about and so I want to try and make sure we just demystify it a bit make it I don't I don't I don't think make it accessible but show that actually this is something that is accessible and I think it's something that's really important for us to study Um, there's nothing wrong with living in a society where stuff is relatively comfortable it's not like we've necessarily chosen to be born in the UK but I think if we are in a society where that is the case I think we need to then perhaps even work extra hard on making sure that we actually don't become fully comfortable with the world we're currently living in because that's not going to be our Eternal home at least this world not in its current form. Um, So what we're going to do is kind of four sessions, which um, They will probably be a little bit uneven in terms of the amount of time we give to them because I I know this topic is one where You're I'd like to make sure we get a bit of time to answer questions and so on So it may be that there are certain one there's one of these Four particular things we're going to look at that might take a bit more time one that might take a bit less but we're going to basically First of all, we're gonna take a bit of a step back. So this first, uh, first session, we're gonna take a step back and just think through what is the goal of history? Just so we have got a big, kind of big, broad strokes, um, bird's eye view approach to um, to the end times. We're then gonna end up looking at what happens to individuals specifically. So kind of the classic question, what happens to me when I die, that, more, more that kind of approach. Um, third session, we're going to have a quick look at what what are some of the major events that the Bible says happens during the end times? What are those big things? So not going to too much depth in any of them, but just saying, OK, there are certain things that the New Testament does talk about happening. And then finally, we're going to look at the the final state. So uh, eternal punishment, eternal life. What, what can we say about each of those? And uh, we're going to finish by, um, well, before you have a chance to ask some more questions, by looking at new creation and hopefully just having our minds blown by how amazing that is gonna be. So that's where we're going, we're all happy with that? I I asked that, but I don't know what I'd do if it was like, no, I'm not happy with it, okay. (laughs) Let's change the topic. But So first of all, we're gonna look at the goal of history because I think very often when we talk about the end times, um, our question can be quite an individual kind of question. So what happens to me when I die? That can very often be the way that we think about it. And actually, Although the Bible does address the question of what happens when we die, and it does, put, um, it does address the question of what happens to us as individuals, um, it's also interested at a larger level at what is the purpose, what is God doing in history? Not just what is going to happen to certain individuals at the end of history, but what is God doing with the whole of history? And so um, in order to understand this, we're going to basically look at three particular time periods in the Bible. Um, first is before the fall second is after the fall and third is in light of jesus and just realize that the way history works is looked at in slightly different perspectives in those three bits and we live in the time of history where jesus has already come and has died and been raised from the dead which means the way we understand history will be from a slightly different angle and slightly fuller than people who are in the old testament or um and actually, history and the way it works as a whole has ended up changing slightly in light of the fall and so on. So, we're gonna look at that. And the way we're gonna do that is, I'm gonna need a couple of volunteers to hold this up. And as I'm looking at Andy, you can be one of them. Would anyone else like to volunteer to be, hold the second? So, this is just, just kind of, you can stand kind of in front. Uh, is that the right way round? Left to right? Let's do it the other way around, just so that people get their timeline in the, uh, that's right. So, this is just, a, I suppose, a simple illustration to show. So what we've got here, for those who are listening online, we've got a, basically a timeline, so left to right, of history. Those of you who are history fans will love timelines. Those of you who aren't, bear with us. Um, so kind of beginning towards the end of history. Now, the first, um, the first period that we're going to look at in terms of thinking about how we're meant to look at history is before the fall so after creation um, god created this universe in order to dwell by his presence in his creation he created it you might say he created it as a temple which is a place where god is meant to dwell with his presence and that he created human beings and said to them i want you to be fruitful multiply fill the whole um whole of this cosmos the whole of this world And by human beings being created in his image, spreading the kingdom of God, so to speak, all the way to the ends of the earth, eventually the whole world is filled with the glory of God. And so you've got a very kind of linear chronology. You've got creation, but creation's not the end goal. What we've got is an end goal where creation basically comes to its climax, where the whole of creation is filled with the glory of God. Um, And that that's kind of, that's the way things were set up. What unfortunately happens is with the fall, you get history ends up being cut into two. So with the full humanity... So at this point I'm going to need to hold this. Oh yeah, you can probably manage that. So if you can try and hold it so it still meets in the middle. So we have the full happen humanity rebels against God and decides we want to do stuff our own way. And so suddenly we don't just have a straightforward linear progression to the climax of history. The climax of history is still God's intention. But we have a problem to solve in the meantime, or God has a problem to solve, which is that death, sin, decay have entered the world. And so what happens is for most of the Old Testament, the way you would um, read the Old Testament and think about history is we have the current age, which is the age that, I suppose, for all intents and purposes, we would think that we live in, and then the age to come. And what happens is there's a decisive break where as far as the Old Testament is concerned, at some point in the future, God is going to come and judge the world. He's going to restore all things. He's going to punish the wicked, reward the righteous, and he is going to restore creation. And the dead will be raised from the dead. And there will be everlasting life, everlasting happiness in a brand new recreated world. So that's how you would look at history if you were looking at it from the point of view of God's people in the Old Testament. We are living in this age, the age, um, the current age, And we are waiting for God to break in, to judge the nations and to restore his people. And then we will live in the age to come. So that's second period. If you're looking at it from the Old Testament point of view. Now, that is still true. But what happens is when Jesus comes along is that we get a bit of a zoom into here. So this break moment, which is often referred to as the day of the Lord, where God comes to judge the world, in light of Jesus has actually already begun. Because Jesus came, and in his cross, in his death and resurrection, this age, new creation, the age to come, has actually already begun. But that happens in the middle of the current age. So what you, ha- what you get with Jesus coming along is suddenly you get an overlap of the ages. And so if this point here, that, um, where Andy's hand is, if this is the death and resurrection of Jesus... And this point here is Jesus' second coming, where the um, the dead are judged, the dead are raised, new creation happens, and we finally get a fully new creation. We're actually living in this bit. And the way the New Testament speaks about this bit is to call it the end times. So I think often the expression the end times is used to refer to some kind of period at some point in the future, or some kind of period that's probably starting around about now because now all of those biblical prophecies are happening whereas up until now the last 2000 years that's not the case but actually the new testament teaching is that this period that we currently live in the last 2000 years is the end times it's the end times because as soon as jesus's death and resurrection happened the day of the lord so to speak has already begun and that will then climax when you get I suppose what you might call the second installment of the Day of the Lord, when Christ returns, the dead are raised, and, um, and the universe is basically restored to what it should have been. Does that make sense? So we live in this current age, and that's really important as we go through the rest of the day to remember. The end times is not something that will happen. There are events within the end times that are still to happen, but we are currently living in that age. Make sense? Excellent, you guys can now sit down and give yourself a round of applause fantastic so let me just double check that i've not with my notes flying around in the wind kind of hidden them a bit um yeah so we are living in the overlap between the current age where this world is still subject to decay and futility and death and the age to come where this world will be completely freed from death and futility now notice for that whole of that I at no point mentioned the idea of going to heaven when you die. We will come on to that idea, but actually the biblical hope isn't going to heaven when you die. The biblical hope is God restoring and recreating this universe. Whether or not that whether that looks exactly like this world just rid of sin and death or whether it looks like something very different. It's not about escaping from the world, it's about the world and creation being completely restored. And that's really important to understand as well. So the Bible does talk about the idea of going to heaven when you die, but it doesn't present that, that as the end goal of history. It presents that actually as something that happens before the end of history, but we will get onto that in a bit. Um, does that make sense to everyone? Yeah? All happy? So what I'd like us to do is kind of a bit of a group activity. Have you got your Bibles? Or has everyone got access to a Bible? Um, we are going to read a big chunk of um, chunk of Scripture together. I thought... I mean, if, I, if I've got the opportunity to give you a, a basically a 10, 15 minute exercise, I thought, why, why not spend that time reading a large chunk of scripture? So we talked about the goal of history. So big kind of bird's eye view. In the next session, we're going to look at what happens to individuals. And so what I'd like you to do is open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians 15. It's quite a, it's quite a long chapter. It's about 58 verses, but you should have enough time to read it in, in the next five or 10 minutes. I'd like you to have a read of that. First uh, Corinthians 15, so that's um, just after Acts and Romans, First Corinthians 15, uh, second to last chapter in that book, and I'd like you to spend however much time you need, might, those of you who are fast readers, it might take three minutes, those of you who are a bit um, less fast might take you five, six, up to ten, but just have a read of that, and then once you're done, maybe get into groups of two or three, and just highlight if there were any things in that particular passage that you you thought... I'd like to understand that a bit more. I'm not sure exactly what Paul meant there. We're going to spend the next session looking at some of the highlights of the passage. So don't worry if you're a bit confused by some of the stuff. But does that make sense? So off you go. Have a read of that chapter. And I will join you by reading it myself as well. Okay, should we gather back together? So... That I am sure that will have thrown up a whole a whole bunch of questions. It's probably it's probably one of Paul's well, it's one of Paul's longest chapters, but one of his most dense, and some of the argumentation can feel a little bit like, oh, what's he doing there? But um, what we're going to do in hold those. If you have questions and you are like, oh, I am not sure what to make of that, hold those, and if they don't get answered through us, kind of looking through the major highlights of this passage, then we'll have a bit of Q and A um, after after I finish speaking, and we can. Um, see if we can answer those questions um what we're going to do for the next um i'd say 10-15 minutes is have a look at we looked at the what you might call cosmic eschatology which i saw by the way eschatology i haven't haven't noticed eschatology is the technical word that people use to refer to study of the end times um because you have to have a complicated word because it sounds it makes it sound more clever uh, end time based study of the end times and so we've looked at the kind of cosmic side we're now going to look at the personal side and that's part of what Paul, the who, the guy who wrote this particular letter, is um, talking about in this chapter, and so before we look at um, that particular chapter together, um, what is our hope as Christians, as individual Christians? Now, if you ask most people on the street, if you say, if you were to ask a Christian, what's your what's your hope? Uh, they might say something like, oh, it's to it's to go to heaven when you die, and they say, oh, it's to avoid going to hell when you die and going to heaven, and there's Part to that, which is true, but the problem with that is the ultimate hope that we have in the New Testament isn't actually going to be with Jesus when you die. It's actually something that happens after that. So you heard the phrase life after death. The New Testament focuses more on, this is confusing, life after life after death. In other words, it's not, it is interested in what happens when you die, but it's actually more interested in what happens after you've died so after you've died Christ will return at some point in the future and those who have died will be raised from the dead that's what it's far more interested in And so, but there are a few references to what happens when you, when you die which we'll, we'll talk about maybe another way of putting it which is a bit less confusing than saying life after life after death and when you read it it looks like a typo um, in fact there, uh, there was a guy who wrote a book called Surprised by Hope and he wanted to call it life after life after death and the editors thought it was a typo so he said let's just Scrap that title, and we 'll go for <laughs> surprise by hope. Um, another way of phrasing it is God is going to do for us believers what He did for Jesus when He raised him from the dead. so what happened to Jesus is going to happen to us that 's the New Testament pattern of what happens to um, believers at the at the end of time. so if we take this chapter, so I think first corinthians fifteen a dense chapter, but I think the most the most in-depth detailed chapter on what happens to individual christians when christ returns um so we're just going to pick up a few bits through uh, through the passage won't pick up on everything but a few key moments um in there so first of all brief background to the chapter um you may have noticed in the first few verses that paul seemed to be pretty strong on trying to convince the corinthians that they are going to be raised from the dead one day it seems like this particular church were happy with the idea that Jesus had been raised from the dead but they didn't believe that they themselves would be raised from the dead so it might be that because they were Greeks they thought well that sounds weird we like the idea of once you die go, your soul floating off to some kind of paradise and never getting a body again bodies are horrible they're physical they're nasty and so they might not have believed that there was such a thing as physical resurrection in the future but Paul really wants to convince them No, no 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 there is a resurrection that awaits you and in fact if there isn't a resurrection that awaits you, then Jesus wasn't even raised from the dead. Because actually, Jesus's resurrection and our resurrection, in one sense, are not two different events. They're part of the same event. It's just that Jesus happens to have been raised first. And so Paul really, really, really wants these guys to understand you will be raised from the dead one day. So that's the background to that chapter. That's why he spends so much time on this. Because as far as Paul's concerned, the fact that when Christ returns, um, the, the dead in Christ will be raised from the dead that's part of the gospel so it's a non-negotiable as far as he's concerned it's like, I'm not letting this one go, I'm going to write 58 verses on it um, that's how much I care about it so that's background to it so let, we'll, we'll skip kind of the, the first bit where Paul's reminding them of the gospel reminding them of the fact that you believe the gospel that says Jesus was raised from the dead so you should definitely believe that you will be raised from the dead um, and let's say so verse 14 will be the first one we pick up on If Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. So he starts by rooting it in the resurrection of Jesus. If Jesus' resurrection happened, then Christianity is true and everything else that, that comes to do with our resurrection is true. But if it isn't, and Christ hasn't been raised from the dead, then it's completely futile. So if we found out that Jesus actually hadn't been raised from the dead, we are wasting our time here. It's that clear cut. If Jesus isn't wasn't raised from the dead, then what we're doing now is a waste of time. It's a little bit like um, you know when at Easter the Cadbury's cream egg bring out their big, like large size ones. Yeah, you get like you get the, the Easter egg size version. And I, I bought one of those once and broke it open and was horrified to find out that it's not actually a giant Cadbury's cream egg. It's an empty shell. That is a yeah. You feel, there we go. <laughs> I'm sure others of you have had it. Like, it's not a large version of the small ones, which are amazing, by the way. That's kind of, that's kind of a a pale and stupid illustration of what happens to Christianity if you remove the resurrection. It's, it's futile. It's empty. It's like, look at the size of, oh, wait, it's completely empty. And Paul is really, really keen. He's basically saying, you know what? If Jesus hasn't been raised, then we might as well just go back home and pack it all up. That's because Jesus' resurrection is the first event of the end times. If that hadn't happened, then there's no hope for the future. So he's really, really keen on making sure that they're clear that it's not just... He's, he's clear, clear, keen on making sure that they know that Jesus was raised from the dead, but he's also keen on making sure that they realise that Jesus being raised from the dead was not just a nice thing that happened to him, but is central to what is going to happen to us as well, which we find out a little bit more if we fast forward a bit and go to verses 20 to 23. But in, in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has also come about the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order. Christ the first fruits, then at his coming those who belong to Christ. So Christ has been raised from the dead. It's great, he, that has happened. But that is what's called the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. What Paul means by that is, has anyone heard of the idea of first fruits before? Yeah. No? So if you're a farmer, and you plant lo- you plant a load of crops, the first bits, the first crops to actually grow are called the first fruits. And what those crops show is that there's more to come. In other words, it's the first instalment of more that's going to come. It's a little bit, I suppose, if you if you Paying, paying someone in instalments, that first bit, you might want to call that the first fruits. It's a guar- it's a or the deposit, it's a guarantee of the fact that there's more that's going to come. And Paul's saying Christ's resurrection is the first bit of the harvest of everyone. So, in that sense, Jesus' resurrection and our future resurrection, like I said, are not two fundamentally separate events. Jesus' resurrection is the first part of a larger resurrection. It's just that Jesus happens to have been raised halfway through history whereas the rest of us will be raised at the end of time. Um, Makes a couple of comments about how by a man came death. So we know the story of Adam and Eve. He's talking about Adam here. Actually, through Adam's sin, death comes into the world. By a man, which he later on calls the second Adam, the resurrection has come about. So in other words, Jesus is reversing what came into the world as a result of Adam. As in Adam, all die. So all human beings are fundamentally in Adam unless they belong to Christ. So all die so also in christ shall all be made alive so what that means is those who are in christ shall be made alive so just in the same way as those who are in adam all die which we are still subject physically to to death in christ all shall be made alive so those of us who are believers who have been baptized into christ have put our faith in christ we belong to christ we know that we shall be made alive on that on on that last day but each in his own order christ the first root. so he comes first and then when he returns at his coming, those who belong to him. So there's one thing you want to remember about those, those two verses. Christ's resurrection and our resurrection are not two completely separate events. They're part of the same event. So in the Old Testament, you would look at the future and look at the day where God could come to judge the world. And you would talk about the resurrection of the dead. You can still do that. We're talking here about the resurrection, the general resurrection of the dead. It's just that Jesus's resurrection is the first part of that. And also it guarantees that the rest of us are going to follow. So we will participate in that when he returns. Make sense? Yeah. Yeah? Okay. let's move on a little bit. So bearing in mind the the end goal is resurrection here. It's not. Um, some kind of disembodied um, immortality. So just as an aside before we move on maybe, the Bible does speak about what happens when you die. So we've been talking about what happens when Christ returns, but the vast majority of Christians throughout history will have died before Christ returns. The Bible does talk about the idea of being away from the body and with the Lord when you die so the idea is that actually when you die your soul or the spirit or what, what the immaterial part of you the thing that i suppose that makes <laughs> up your personality um goes to be with Christ whilst your body is in the grave or um or is oh, i've now forgot my words or gets cremated or, or or whatever your body decays your soul goes to be with Christ but that's not the end goal the end goal is when your soul is reunited to your as we'll see in a second fully glorified body on the day of resurrection and that's when that's when the end comes at that point um, but that, that being said dying and going to be with Jesus is something that is to be desired so even though that's not the ultimate hope of Christians the ultimate hope is resurrection eternal life on a recreated physical earth with Christ going to be with Jesus when you die is better than not being with Jesus um, or better than being than, than being alive at the moment Paul says I would prefer to be away from the body and with the Lord the only reason that I want to stay here right now is so that I can serve you as a church if I didn't want to do that i you know I'd far prefer to be away from the body and with the Lord but even Paul knows that that's not the ultimate destiny of Christians so moving on to talk about um, what does it look like when you're raised so verses kind of picked up verses 35 so someone will ask how are the dead raised with what body what kind of body do they come now paul replies you foolish person here the reason is it's a hypothetical stupid question it's not someone who's genuinely curious thinking i wonder what the dead dead look like this is paul imagining that the corinthians would say oh seriously what are, how are the dead gonna be raised what are they gonna look like so he's kind of just putting them in their place right at the start and explains to them you know what just because you've got a rotting corpse in the grave doesn't mean God can't bring new life to that corpse. Actually, take a seed. If you plant a seed, what you plant is in continuity with what comes out, but it's not the same thing. There's a difference between the plant that grows and the seed that's planted, but it comes out of the seed. So it's not a completely different thing, but at the same time, it's not identical. So you're basically saying, look, just because you've got a rotting corpse in the grave doesn't mean that you've got a zombie that's going to come out of the tomb. It's a bit like a seed. You're going, to, you're going to have something that comes that is going to be somehow made from the stuff that that body was made of, but is going to be different in nature. Is going to be glorified. Is going to be um, glorious. It's going to be what we'll talk about in a second spiritual rather than natural so verses 42 to 44 so it is with the resurrection of the dead what is sown so he's talking about the image of the seed again is perishable what is raised is imperishable it's sown in dishonor it's raised in glory it's sown so sown every time is a kind of metaphor for death in this case it's sown in weakness it's raised in power it's sown a natural body it's raised a spiritual body in other words, you've got a contrast between the current body that we live in, which is perishable. We all die. At some point we will all die and we will all get sick and ill at various times in our lives. That's perishable. We will be raised on that final day in imperishable bodies, bodies that are not prone to decay or sickness or death anymore. We live in a natural body. We will be raised in a spiritual body. Now, just to hone in on this a little bit, this isn't a physical body and then A non-physical body. When Paul talks about spiritual and natural, what he means here is a natural body is a body that is animated by just the natural human human life. So what you might call the, the soul. It's a body that is kind of, I suppose, you could say, is appropriate for being animated by that natural human soul. Whereas the body that we're waiting for is a body that is animated by and fitted to be animated by God's Holy Spirit in completely in us. So we have the Holy Spirit dwelling in us, but we will be given bodies where that, it's almost like that those are the bodies that actually are completely appropriate to be animated by God's Spirit. A little bit like, I suppose a weak, a weak illustration would be like a diesel car and a petrol car. If you say I've got a diesel car, you don't mean that your car's literally made out of diesel. You mean that it runs on diesel and it's a car that is fitting for that particular kind of petrol. If you, uh, if you well, that kind of fuel if you've got a petrol car it's a car that is m- not made from petrol it's a car that is fitting for that particular kind of fuel I think it's the same kind of idea with natural versus spiritual we now have a natural body a body that is animated by our soul um, but we will have a spiritual body a body that is fitting for and animated by the, God's Holy Spirit um, in fact there's a parallel between Jesus' resurrection body and our resurrection body what happened to Jesus will happen to us. And so actually you can, you can think about some of the stuff that Jesus did in his resurrected body. Think there's, in theory, there's no reason why we don't then have that, that kind of body. So we don't know exactly what it will look like. There will obviously be a difference of some kind. Because we're talking about something that is imperishable, immortal, um, versus something that is natural. But it's not like you've got a body that dies and then you've got a spirit that r- rises. You've got a body. We will have a body. We will still be physical, embodied, um, material creatures, whatever that actually looks like. Well, I don't know. It seems like we might be able to teleport. That's one thing Jesus seemed to have done. He just appeared randomly in the middle of a room. But it wasn't because he was a ghost. It's because he had a glorified, resurrected body. Maybe that was just something Jesus did once. Um, But maybe that is something that we'll be able to do. Again, that's speculation. But there's a parallel between what happened to Jesus when he was raised and what will happen to us And all of this happens, if you read the last few verses of this chapter, but I've mentioned this already, this all happens at Christ's return. So it's not that we die and then immediately get this resurrection body. As we die, we go to be with Jesus in a disembodied state. And when Christ returns, our soul is reunited with our glorified, resurrected body. And then, at that point, Paul says, then shall come to pass the saying, death is swallowed up in victory. And I, I mean, imagine living in a world where a thousand years in, you're thinking, yeah, what was that thing called death again? I can kind of remember this idea that people stopped existing, but that doesn't compute in my mind. At the moment, the idea that someone doesn't stop existing can't compute in our mind. Imagine being in a situation where you think, actually, it feels weird, the idea of someone stopping existing. I think That's probably the kind of dramatic change you're talking about in terms of this life versus the life to come. So it's going to be amazing. And just to finish that bit, I just want to pick up on Paul's final verse in this chapter. Not that Paul realized that he was stopping the chapter there and then going on to 16. But um, it says, therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that the, that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. And I think the point I want to make there is the same as Paul's, which is resurrection makes a difference now. It's not just some obscure... Um, I don't know, fun to study idea for those of us who like studying it, but a bit weird if um, we're not too into it. It's not that. It's something that will happen to us. And it's something that makes a difference in the here and now. If you know that one day when Christ returns, you are going to be raised from the dead to everlasting, immortal life. It will make a huge difference to the way you live now. Whereas if you're looking at the future saying, not really sure what happens. I don't really know if there's much of a hope. You're going to live in this life kind of hedging your bets. I'm just going to play it safe. Paul didn't play it safe. The way Paul lived his life was to consistently put the cause of the gospel and the cause of Christ first. And that's because he had such a solid conviction that because Christ had been raised from the dead, he too would one day be raised from the dead. Which meant he could suffer in this life and know that one day that would all have been worth it. And so I want to kind of finish on that, just encourage us. Let's make sure this doesn't just become something we say, oh, I've understood how that works now, but actually is something that ends up driving us in the way that we live, um, in a way that means we can live sacrificially, serving one another. That means that we can live sacrificially in terms of preaching the gospel. And if uh, for some of us, it may mean moving to countries actually in the future where you think, I would not have chosen to move here, but actually I want to do this. And I know that one day all of the stuff that I would have lost from moving away from the UK... Will be repaid in f- a hundredfold times more in the fact that I'm going to live in a resurrected body with Jesus, with my God. So let's make sure it makes a difference now in our lives. And um, we'll stop there on this chapter. We could spend weeks on on it with all of the details. But um, let's have a let's have some questions. We've probably got about ten fifteen minutes for um, some questions. I think Steph will come up and help on this, and then we'll have a bit of a break where you can have some cakes. Any? questions on I, having said we can stop with that chapter that doesn't mean you're not allowed to ask questions on that just means i'll stop going through my notes on it any yeah um so when people say that they
1: some people have like visions after they mm. die or they have like near death experiences and they say they see heaven and hell or um like in revelation like he see, he has all these visions so, do you think that is just a, a vision, or do you think that because it's kind of outside time and space, that it is happening now as well as something
0: that will happen hmm. in the future? You know what I mean. <laughs> interesting. the The outside time and space thing is an interesting one because I I, I, I I don't think that's necessarily the way things work in the sense of how we experience it. So, I'm I'm not sure that when we die, we suddenly stop experiencing time, space or all of that. I, it doesn't seem to be the way the New Testament articulates it, at least. So I don't know where... That almost feels like it might be a more kind of modern philosophical way about, of thinking about it. But that being said, the whole visions of hell and heaven, I'd say it's probably a bit of a mixed bag. I think you, you've probably got... You've got some claims of people saying, oh, well, I died, had near-death experience and saw this, where you think that might have just been that you had a bit of a weird vision and then some people who you say, well I was dead and then I came back to life and you listen to what they are and you think, well unless you're lying, that actually sounds very similar to what you get in the New Testament. Um I think the key thing is you probably don't want to in terms of your theology and understanding, I think it's dangerous to give too much weight to that. I think when some when something like that happens and you think, well, that lines up with scripture, then I think what that does is it just I suppose, gives you a bit more confidence in scripture. But I don't think it shouldn't be the kind of thing that then dictates the way you think about, because um, all kinds of people claim to have all kinds of experiences in various religions, but that doesn't necessarily mean that it's a, a reliable indicator. So I think it would be a bit of a mixed bag, really, yeah. in terms of, you, know, sometimes
1: you you find, like, you get these, these biographies that kind of go viral, don't you, of people's experiences, and sometimes they're pretty compelling and, and quite. Um, What's the word? They're sort of vivid. They're gripping. Wow. Hmm. Ah. Um, and I think, you know, I think, I think, as long as we've got that, like, Dan was saying, that plumb line of, hold on a minute, you know, is is this, is this what the Bible teaches? Then it can it can bring. It, there's, nothing wrong, there's nothing wrong with bringing colour to what the Bible teaches. Hmm. <laughs> That's there's nothing wrong with that at all. Um, I guess if we were even to just teach with imagination. The Bible teaches. That's a good thing. Mm. I think when it begin, when things begin to be get said, that uh, you think, well, okay, either that's not biblical. Check it out, or it's making a really big deal of something that is mentioned once in the mm. Bible, that we're not really quite sure what that means anyway. That we're going to build something really big on it. That's another thing mm. to just beware of. Um, that, that I think sometimes people can do. You know, they can sort of take a little sentence here and build this huge thing on it, and it becomes the main idea, that's probably not very wise, mm. um, but yeah, in terms of the time and space thing, it's an interesting one, because mm. I do think God's outside of time and outside of space, mm. but he actually always deals with us yeah. in time and space, that's like like Dan was saying, that's mm. actually the way that God chooses to relate to us, so we're probably better off sticking on, on that mm. actually. I yeah. mean, I wonder whether there will be a sense of, I don't know, <coughs> like, even like when Jesus returns in, in the New Age, whether there will be a sense of progression still, mm you know it's an interesting one is we don't mm. know but because
0: um, mm. yeah. it, it will still be creation in that sense so it's it's not like we suddenly join the rank of God where there There are certain bits of God that actually are completely alien to us in, in even in eternity future I think so yeah yeah, yeah
1: I was just wondering if you can uh, do conclusions from the times when uh, Jesus was resurrected and the least his disciples like what he was like then, at that time, like still recognisable. Mm. Even he had a new body, we still recognize Even his scars were there. Mm. So I was sort of wondering, uh, yeah, if we can draw conclusions from that, yeah, or if it just don't make. So I'm personally, I'm, I'm quite thinking, oh, he knows what is good. I don't need to worry about what <laughs> yeah. he look like. Yeah.
0: <laughs> yeah. I, I think we can, o- we, we could over obsess about exactly what resurrection yeah. bodies will look like. I think. Particularly when it comes to stuff like Jesus' scars, I don't, I don't think that that's a precedent that everyone who has scars then has them into eternity, because I think the point of Jesus' scars is to show yeah, I've yeah. won. Um, but I think, yeah, I, I think you're right. We, I, I think to t- speculate too much on what our body would be like, would probably be going beyond scripture, but to know that there is a, there is a general principle of... As we have borne the image of the man of dust, Adam, we shall bear the image of the man of heaven, Christ. So the general principles there, exactly how that works out. Um, Yeah, I'm not too sure what in the resurrection stories is, is about Jesus specifically. Um, So, for example, the fact that he's not recognisable. I'm like, it could be that that means that that Jesus' resurrection body was... Yeah, so I... I think, I've, yeah, I think i yeah. I think I read that and think I wonder whether that's God keeping the disciples from recognizing Him until they understood, or does that mean that there's something about His resurrection body that was kind of recognisable, but you needed to probe a little bit. I'm not too sure. I think that would be then speculating at that point. Yeah,
1: I mean, I, I agree. I think the only thing to say maybe to add to it is, is that this is the, currently the only example we have of a resurrection body, <laughs> and so in that sense, you know, yeah. if you it's the only place we can really look. So it makes, it makes sense. Particularly mm-hmm. T- with the parallels Paul draws in th- this chapter. I think you know that, 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 if we, that we're not on kind of, what's the word, we're not on overly speculative grounds. Looking mm. at the body of Jesus and, and saying there's probably some similarities there. Um, because there's something wonderfully physical about it. He's eating, isn't it? to prove he's not mm-hmm. a ghost. He asked them for fish because he wanted to show them I'm not a no. ghost. But he's appearing in locked rooms. I mean, there's something about that which is... It's a sort mm. of both. It's, yeah. uh, it's real, mm. very real and mm. tangible. Yeah. And at the same time, it's stepping over boundaries mm. so that we could not step over the yeah. present body. Right. Uh, mm.
0: Mm. Yeah. It will be in continuity with our present body in the sense that I think we'll recognize ourselves... I, I imagine we will recognize ourselves in new creation. I just—I don't think the Bible seems to have this sense of once you're in new creation, you're like... I don't recognise anyone, I think there will be a recognisability about us, but yet there'll be discontinuity in the sense that we'll have gone from a completely natural, perishable body to a fully glorified spiritual body, and what all of the ins and outs of that look like we we will find out one day but yeah, we've got a precedent in there with, with Jesus um, is that a question Andy? Or you, uh, yeah. I was just
1: going to say, it's interesting that there's no mention of Satan in this passage, I, hmm. I wonder whether there's sort of um, more of an emphasis of death being our greatest sort of enemy or the greatest mm-hmm. problem. Um, but again, I know that could be taken out of context because we're just looking at something very specific. Yeah. But I just wonder whether there's any significance to that, whether like, putting the emphasis on death and saying we need to
0: get rid of death. Yeah. Um, well, I think here in in this case, I suppose it's the that that is the main enemy if we're talking about resurrection, yeah. because resurrection is the reversal or the defeat of death. Um, there are other passages in the New Testament where the end times is thought of also from the perspective of the defeat of Satan so I think Revelation particularly emphasises that I think it's probably the focus of the passage but that being said um, the death, Satan's sin, there's, there's a sense in which we have to not always lump them together because otherwise you get the thing where you're saying oh Satan made me do this thing wrong and you think actually no you decided to do something wrong that was your kind of the flesh the sinful nature but the, death came into a world through one man But death came into the world through one man Responding to Satan's temptation So I think There's different aspects to it And I think the aspect that's focused on particularly here Is death um, Although if you read Revelation Death does seem to be the one that's like Satan is cast into the the lake of fire And that all seems to happen Before you get the The fully kind of recreated universe So Yeah Yeah. Yeah. I think, I don't know. I don't know what you think. Yeah, I, think just, well, at I suppose it. death is a byproduct, partly of what Satan has done as well, isn't it? Um, it's interesting. Isn't it? Yeah. Then, I, I
1: mean, I've never really yeah. thought about it in this particular way. Mm-hmm. So this is verse twenty-four. It mm. comes the end when he hands over the kingdom to God the Father. When he has abolished all rule and all authority mm. and power, Satan would come under that. Yeah. 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 Um, as the, the sort of the the prince of the principalities and all of that I guess he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet the last enemy that will be abolished is death yeah Mm. it's a fascinating one because obviously in revelation death is like the sentence isn't it for satan and for satan's and for the false prophet and for the beast and for the unbelievers death is death the second death is the sentence um almost almost death seems to play a slightly different role in Revelation, mm. that it does in this chapter, if that makes sense. Here, it's yeah. being presented as an as an outright enemy to be abolished. There, it's being presented as a means through which God punishes His enemies. Mm. Um, but what what that means for what God will do with death once everyone's been cast into death is a, fascin- mm. it's yeah. a fascinating one that I've never not really, uh, before this
0: moment, thought about. Mm good question yeah reflect <laughs> the <laughs> 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 um let's we'll have some more time for q a um at the end let's what i think we'll do just in terms of time to have it well, we'll have, i'll just spend 10 minutes talking about something quickly and then we'll have a break and then we'll do the f- final session i think hopefully that will allow us a bit more time at the end to do q a um so what i'd like to do now just um, i'll go through this relatively quickly because i again as with all of this you could spend a long time on each one particularly some of the ones that are a bit perhaps more controversial and debated but um having looked at overview of history and what happened specifically to us as believers at the end time um there are some major events during this period called the end times that the new testament does speak about so i just want to kind of run through a bunch of them and um i was going to get people to stand up and hold these but i think you know what it's so I won't get you moving around too much. I will hold them. Um, So these are just, I suppose, some clear events that happen during this time period. I will go through some of these very quickly, some of them a little bit more slowly because some of them will be well known to you, some of them will be a bit less well known. Jesus' resurrection, really important, that is the first event of the end times, the first event where new creation has broken into the old order of things. So that is when the end times begins. So just to reiterate that, What what we've then got, hopefully these are in order, um, is something called the Great Tribulation. Anyone heard of that expression before? Yeah, so it comes from a passage in Revelation 7 where it talks about the believers from the nations being glorified, waving palm branches before God's throne. And the angel says, they've come out of the Great Tribulation. Now, a great deal of speculation has gone into, oh, what is this Great Tribulation? Um, I think the most natural understanding of what the Great Tribulation is referring to there is that it is a reference to the whole of the church age. That actually it's a reference to the fact that in this life Christians will face suffering and persecution. There may be a sense in which, and it seems that there are clues, that suffering may well get worse prior to Jesus' return. But you sometimes get some some people who would suggest that there is a... I don't know a three and a half year period exactly of intense suffering just before the return of Jesus, um, and I think from my point of view, and I think from Steph's point of view as well, that that would be reading Revelation in a slightly overly literalistic way. So I think you, we wouldn't read the whole of Revelation in that very literal way. And I think the when Revelation talks about three and a half, for reasons that I could explain later if you if you'd like to, I think that is a way of referring to the whole of the church age from the perspective of intense suffering. Um, So if you ever find something that a particular number of days or number of months or number of years in Revelation that adds up to about three and a half, that seems to be a way of talking about the whole of church history from the perspective particularly of suffering and persecution. Um, And so I suppose it's possibly quite likely that prior to Christ's return, things will get particularly um, intense and difficult when it comes to persecution, but I think we should see ourselves as already in the great tribulation. And I think it's important to think that even if there is a more intense period coming, because I think we mustn't be caught unawares. We we mustn't think that oh wait I'm facing some flack for the gospel. I must be doing something wrong. No, if you're facing flack for the, the gospel for preaching the gospel, actually that is part of our lot as Christians because we are currently living in an age where. Satan wants to stamp out the gospel. So really important to get that. So even if there may be a period before Christ's return that is particularly intense, I think the Great Tribulation is something we are already in. Um, So that one spent a bit more time on. This one's a quick one, but very important. Gospel goes to all nations. Jesus says, this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed in all nations, then the end will come. So although we cannot know exactly when Christ is coming back, we can know that, for example, it is highly unlikely that he's gonna return this afternoon. The reason being the gospel has not yet been proclaimed in the whole world. Um, so that is something that has to happen before Jesus comes back. And something that by the same token should, it, it may be that as some of you hear that you think, I wanna get on with, getting that mission done i think there's i think there are probably more people than we necessarily give credit for who actually have a sense of i want to go somewhere where jesus has never been named before there are still thousands of people groups all around the world where you you mention the word gospel or jesus and they just think never even heard of that what are you on about and so if that's something that you find yourself your heart racing a bit when you hear the idea of unreached people groups or nations that have never heard the gospel then please do chat to Steph or to Rich or just think how, how can we make sure that this dream that God, this desire that God has put in your heart doesn't just become something that gets brushed under the carpet because yeah. it's part of actually... <coughs> the the idea of um there's a sense in which by going and preaching the gospel to unreached people groups we are you might so speak say we are anticipating christ's return we are actually we're looking forward to that day and saying i i want to bring that to as soon as possible i want to hastening the day yeah that's it that's the word i was looking for there's a sense in which we hasten the day by preaching the gospel to those who haven't heard it so anyway spent longer on that than i wanted to but i want to make sure that that that's got a practical outcome for us it's it's really important that we understand that Jesus' second coming, we've mentioned that again. Christ returns from heaven, and um, when he returns f- from heaven, that will be the point where suddenly all eyes will see him, and we then get the resurrection of the dead. So as he returns, that is the moment where the dead are raised. And um, although in First Corinthians 15 the emphasis was on Christians, from other passages in the New Testament, particularly John, I think John 5 or 6, um, they're all people shall be raised whether believers or unbelievers believers will be raised to eternal glory and unbelievers will then be raised to um, eternal loss and so that happens at the return of jesus when you then get something called everyone anyone heard this word the rapture yeah Yeah, it's not a dinosaur that's a raptor the rapture (laughs) is um, the idea that when christ returns those who are in christ who have been raised from the dead or those who were actually Believers and alive at the time of Christ's return, they obviously aren't raised, but they're transformed. They then join him in the sky, um, and that's called the rapture. So when Christ returns, it's almost like Christ comes down, and believers go up to meet him. And presumably, it, it, presumably, they may then come back down to earth with him. There's a, there's a. It seems like in the Roman times, what would often happen is when a when a conqueror would come to back back to his home city people would go out to greet him and then would come back into the city with him so it may well be that what's going on there is we go meet jesus in the air as he returns as the conquering king and that we then come down back to earth with him as he then will start final judgment inaugurating his his or starting his final reign um just to mention the rapture sometimes again as as with the great tribulation can sometimes um be thought of as a secret thing that happens before the end so it's almost um anyone heard of the left behind series of books yeah so it's this idea that you have a a secret rapture kind of in advance of the end where the church suddenly disappears they've been raptured and then a few years later christ actually returns with the church and to to return to the world um it the the thing with that is it As far as I can see, it it rests on a quite shaky interpretation of a few isolated verses in the New Testament, and so I think the general understanding of the New Testament seems to be that when Christ returns, everyone is going to see it. It's not a secret thing that happens in advance, Um, and I think that's that might be something you might, if if you've got some questions or you think, wait a minute, I've always been brought up to believe that there was such a thing as a secret rapture. We could chat a little bit further, or can grab, grab Steph and um, chat a bit further, because I realise that from some church traditions you might come from where that is just kind of taught as standard. Um, and I, actually the church tradition in France that I came out of, that was very very a very popular view. But I think it, biblically it's actually quite a difficult one to justify. So the rapture, from what I can see biblically and from what um, Steph would see as well, is something that happens publicly at the end of time when Christ returns the church stays in this world all the way to the point where Christ returns, rather than escaping from it a little bit before the end. We then have the millennium, from one controversial thing to another. Anyone heard of the millennium? And not, yeah, not, not, not the fact that it was the year 2000. Um, the millennium, again, so this is a, a passage in Revelation 20, um, six verses in, in Revelation 20, which talk about the idea of Satan being cast into a pit and bound, for a thousand years, and that during that time, um, John has a vision of um, dead Christians coming back to life and reigning with Christ for a thousand years before the rest of the dead are raised. Now this is called the Millennium by people, and I'll just highlight quickly three different interpretations of that, um, and then explain how I process it in terms of thinking through, all which one's right? How does it make a difference? One view is the idea that this is something that happens after Christ returns. So Christ returns, and then the dead in Christ are raised, and they reign with Christ for a thousand years in resurrected bodies. And then after a thousand years, the rest of the dead, so unbelievers, are raised. That's what's called premillennialism. So pre means the millennia- Christ returns before the millennium. Okay, so that's one view. That's quite a popular view. Another view is the idea that we are waiting for, an, a, I don't know, a period, whether it's exactly a thousand years or not, at some point in the future there's going to be a golden age for the church and evangelism is going to be amazing because satan has been bound and he can't stop it happening and then at the end of that a thousand years christ returns and we get eternal life and eternal judgment and so on that's what's called post millennialism it's the idea that christ returns after the millennium and the millennium is something we're waiting for in the future another view which i think is probably the majority view of the kind of church background that I grew up in and that a number of you would have if you were have been part of New Frontiers, is what's called amillennianism, which is that view is the idea that Satan being bound is actually something that happened at the cross, and that the 1,000 years is a way of representing the whole of church history, not from the perspective of suffering this time, but from the perspective of the fact that we're expecting fruit, and the idea that actually we have been spiritually raised from the dead, And so it's called amillennialism because it's a way of saying there isn't actually a millennium. There's not actually an exact 1,000 years. It's rather, instead it's a way of talking about the whole of church history from the perspective of the church being fruitful and reigning with Christ. Does that make sense? So those are the three views. My view is that, well, I'm not actually going to give you my view on the pre-post-A because I fluctuate between (laughs) different options. But I think in terms of does it practically make a difference which view you hold, I think yes and no. I think if you build the whole of your life around th- which particular view of the millennium you hold, it can make a, quite a dramatic difference. So if you build the whole of your life around this idea that Christ is going to return one day and then afterwards we will reign for a thousand years on earth, I think what that can sometimes... that will give you a slightly different approach to life than if you think at some point in the future we're going to get in a thousand year period of golden age for the church. Because if you think that we're not currently in the golden age of the church and we're waiting for it, it might lead to passivity in evangelism. However, if you don't build the whole of your life around it and you think actually that's one passage in scripture, the main point of that passage is that the, right, the righteous, those who are in Christ, will be rewarded, whether that's talking about a literal millennium or talking about this present age, If you don't build the whole of your life around it, but also listen to other parts of scripture which tell us we must preach the gospel, we will face opposition during this present age, we will see fruitfulness during this present age, I think the view you hold of the millennium doesn't necessarily make a huge difference to the way you live, provided it doesn't become the only thing that your understanding of the end times revolves around. Make sense? Okay, that's the controversial difficult ones out of the way. And then finally, final judgment. So when Christ returns, dead are raised... All will be judged, believers and unbelievers. Um, and that is a, it's a judgment where God knows what the outcome is. So it's not like you're in a, a court with a jury and a trial and everything. It's, you're talking about the sovereign judge of the universe who knows the secrets of the hearts of men. On that day, no one will say to God, you made the wrong decision. So those who are in Christ, because they are in Christ, who have been declared righteous in the present, will be judged and they will, they will be judged in terms of what they've done during this life. There will be rewards and and loss and so on. But the fact that we have received the Spirit now in advance of that day tells us that on that final day the verdict will be you're in, you're righteous. And those who don't know Christ will be judged and then we'll, t- we'll talk about eternal punishment in a second, which I'm not massively looking forward to. But, um, that, but, judge- but just to make the point, judgment is good news as well. It's bad news if you're on the wrong side of the judge. But it's good news both for, I suppose as Christians, it's good news because we know what the verdict is going to be, even if it is actually still a terrifying day. I don't think we're going to be standing there kind of, I don't know, overconfident going, oh, yeah, I know what the answer is going to be. It's all fine. We, I think it will be a scary day, even if we know what, what the outcome is. But it's also good news from the point of view of if we worship to God who did not actually bring judgment upon this earth, then we wouldn't be worshiping a just God. And actually, we worship a God who is going to, wrong, to right every single wrong that has happened throughout history. And that's partly what Judgment Day is about. It's not, in a sense, it's not just a kind of a line of people where you're saying, you're in, you're out. What it is, is God saying, as a righteous judge, I'm going to put right everything that has been done wrong throughout the whole of history. So it's good news. In fact, a lot of the Psalms talk about the trees clapping their hands because God is going to come and judge the earth. Um, But I think we often immediately think of judgment as a very negative thing. Um, And I think it is negative if you're on the wrong side of the judge, but it's also very positive from the point of view of us as believers, but also from the point of view of it's good news to have a God who is going to bring justice in the end. And then finally, the final event that would happen within, well, actually within the end times. This is kind of beyond the end times because we get new creation, which we'll talk about in a second. So... That is a quick overview of those final events. We're gonna have a bit of a chance to do some Q&A um, at the end, so hold on to questions if you've got them. But you have been sitting there for a long time and have done really well. So let's take a quick five minute break. Cakes, So Oh yeah, let's get the, we've got some ice in the fridge actually, so. And then we'll come back and we'll do our final session on new creation. Okay. okay. It's the, uh, the the final session of the end times. So um, yeah, here we go. <laughs> Always got to do that joke at some point. Um, so we're going to look at um, the idea of hell and new creation. And there will be a, a bit of a, a, a quick group activity in the middle and a chance to ask questions at the end. But um, we're going to start with hell because um, I far prefer to finish on new creation. And what I'm going to do for hell is I'm, I'm going to try and purposefully avoid to constantly qualify everything i'm about to say because it's a very easy thing to do when you're talking about hell i'm just gonna go through some stuff that we would know about hell biblically and um we can't really avoid it so however uncomfortable it is to teach on it and to hear it we have to talk about it if we're not i mean not just if we're talking about the end times but if we want to actually have our live our lives in terms of mission and Evangelism in a way where actually we know what is at stake. I think it's important that we are actually um, aware of what the Bible teaches about hell. So, hell, um, so if you the word hell in your new testament is a translation of the greek word gehenna which is um, a reference to a valley that was just next to jerusalem where there was a load of child sacrifice that went on in the old testament and so there's this idea of kind of fire from child sacrifices coming up so and that term then came to be used by jewish writers and by jesus to refer to um, the place of eternal punishment of the wicked so it's not that it's literally the place just outside of jerusalem but it's an image of the place of eternal, eternal punishment. And so Jesus uses it to refer to that particular place. And Revelation, so the book of Revelation tells us that hell was a place that was created as a place of punishment for the devil and his angels. So in that sense, human beings being sent to hell, in that sense, is a secondary purpose. It's, it's a kind of, you're being sent into eternal punishment in the place that, in terms of its actual design, is created for the punishment of Satan and his angels. Um, so it's just, again, helpful to to, to know that. Um, just a, a few things to say about hell as um, in terms of the end time. So has hell been, does hell exist yet? I don't know. I, I, it's not a place that any human has yet gone to because it's something which happens after judgment, but whether it exists or will, exist afterwards i don't know but it is a place where justice is done so it's important to start with that because hell i think can often be seen as an arbitrary divine torture chamber on the one hand as if god basically just delights in for eternity causing as much pain as he can Um, and actually it's really important to start the outset realizing that hell is a place of justice all punishment that will be given in hell is not disproportionate to the crime and as i'm saying this let's try for a moment to remove our human emotional side to it i'll explain how i process that and think that through but we have to start on the bottom line that whatever happens on that final day people will be sent to a place where punishment is proportionate to the crime Um, and it's important this is god so romans 2 6 god will render to each according to his works it's not it's not oh you're going to hell and you're going to get um, you're going to get a punishment that is absolutely out of proportion to the crime. However much our human brains might struggle with the concept of eternal punishment being in proportion, it's n- we have to start on the basis that God is just. And so any punishment that goes on will be proportionate to that particular per- what that particular person deserves. Hell, I- hell also rids God's creation from evil. So actually, I've just one other thing to say on the justice front. I said one, one extreme is we can think of hell has this kind of caricature place of just a divine torture chamber the flip side is that we of, we sometimes just never even think of or talk about hell and just think of it as oh it's not really that bad it can't be that bad and i think we've got to avoid either either well it's not even an extreme because actually i think the, the the language that is used in the new testament about hell is terrifying and i think it should be but we've got to make sure we don't see it on the one hand almost as a well god's being unjust and just I don't know, getting kicks out of torturing people for eternity. And on the other hand, we've got to make sure we don't think, well, God's just a really nice, gentle guy who will let anyone off the hook in the end anyway. So it's important to make sure that we don't go for either of those options. Hell rids God's creation of evil. So Gehenna, the place that hell is um, named after, it was outside of Jerusalem. And hell is outside of of the city of new creation in Revelation 21. So we get this picture of new creation as a city and... The place of punishment is outside of it. So, in that sense, hell is a place of justice and punishment, but it's also a place where evil is contained. Evil is not allowed into God's good creation, and hell is a way that, is the way that God makes sure that it is kept outside of His good creation. It's also a place where evil is destroyed. So, this isn't this isn't to say that um, that hell isn't permanent or everlasting. But it's a way of saying often the language of fire in the Bible and destruct, uh, is often used to refer to destruction, rather than I think in uh, rather than necessarily the pain. So I think other the idea of pain in hell, whether that's emotional, physical, or so on, you do get that in the New Testament very clearly. But often the image of fire is used to refer to the idea of old, thorough destruction of evil. So it's it's eternal, but it is a place where evil is destroyed. So it's God is dealing with evil. In that particular place, another thing to say is hell is permanent. There's there's no way out. There's um, there is there's no way to. It's not like hell is like purgatory in the Roman Catholic Church. It's not somewhere you go for I don't know a thousand years and then you get to go to new creation. It's new creation or eternal punishment in in hell. Hell is also devoid of the goodness of creation, so it's referred to the, as the outer darkness a lot of the time. And actually, darkness biblically is not something you get in god there is no darkness in god and so it's it's devoid of the goodness of god's creation but that being said god isn't god isn't removed completely from hell i think sometimes hell is phrased as you go and you're separated from god's presence for eternity and from one perspective that's completely true you do not enjoy and delight in god's presence for eternity but that doesn't mean it's a kind of god just steps aside and then lets whatever happens happens Hell is also under God's control. It's not like he just says, all oh, right, okay, well, I'll just I'll hand you over to the devil, and like, the devil is being punished. It's not like those caricatures that you see where the devil is the one doing the punishing in hell. God is the one who is the direct source of judgment. So there we go. So my, my bottom line, and I realize that, that is, it's uncomfortable reading and, hiss- and, and listening to that. My bottom line is, I admit my human mind... Um, if I'm honest thinks of hell as sounding quite unjust in the sense that an eternal punishment for something that feels that surely that's disproportionate and so my bottom line has to be on that final day when judgement happens no one is going to stand there when God gives the verdict on different people and say that's not fair and I think that to me has to be my bedrock because otherwise what happens is I process everything in terms of my current human understanding and try it's different extremes i either completely erase the idea of eternal judgment or i try and explain it away or say it's not actually that bad or so on but actually my bottom line in terms of dealing or at least processing it in terms of emotionally is well the emotional side of i don't want anyone to go there has to be there i think it should i don't think any of us should hear about hell and say oh i really want people to go there but in terms of thinking through how can God be just and allow that, I have to remember my finite mind cannot fathom what God's mind can. Um, and that, again, emotionally that can feel like a cop-out because I have a, at the moment I have a fallen human understanding. My bottom line is on that day I won't be standing there saying, that's really unfair. That kind of emotional knee-jerk objection that I get now, on that day I won't have, something will, I don't know, something will happen where I I look at it and think actually what is happening is completely just and so that's that is kind of my bottom line with that, so I think if anyone when anyone asks me surely that's just unfair, that doesn't make sense, um, I would admit that from my human understanding it feels like that to me, but um, my bottom line is God is just and therefore I won't be standing on that final day going, that's wrong, I'll stand on that final day going, that's horrible but it's actually completely right and just so that's hell and we can obviously if you have any questions about it you can um, talk about it, Bex has just texted me a picture of Zoe with sunglasses on <laughs> that's a nice way of lightening the mood after that um, we're now going to talk about new creation so um, which is a good, a good thing to, to end on so hopefully you've got the message by now so our eternal destiny is to live with God in a perfectly in a perfect creation with resurrection bodies Okay, so although there is uh, something very desirable, and actually desirable beyond this current life in dying and going to be with Jesus, our end goal is to be resurrected from the dead and to live with God in a perfectly recreated universe. So new creation will be what, what the Garden of Eden would have become if humanity hadn't failed. So new creation isn't a return back to Eden. It's a return to what it would have become... If humanity had been faithful to God's commission and the ends of the earth had been filled with the glory of God. Which kind of answers the. Has anyone heard the objection of how do we know that in new creation or in in heaven, however it's phrased, that it's not just going to all happen again? That someone's going to sin a few, I don't know, years or millennia in and we're just going to get the same problem again? And the reason we know that's not going to be the case is because it isn't a return to Eden. It's a return to what Eden would have become. If humanity had actually crossed the head of the serpent and faithfully um, been fruitful, multiplied, pr- um, and expanded the kingdom of God, so what I'd like to do is the way we're going to do this is if you want to, um, I'm just going to kind of split into one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, seven different groups. So maybe groups of three or three or four. Um, can you four read Isaiah 25 verses six to nine? So uh, th- these will be quick passages to read, and just pick up some things about what these passages tell you about new creation. Um, Amos, so can you three have a look at Amos 9 verses 11 to 15? Um, Can you, you three, if you could have a look at Micah 4 verses one to five, and now I'm gonna have to split you in slightly smaller groups. If you two could have a look at Zechariah 8 verses one to eight. You two at the back, Uh, if you could have a look at Romans 8, 18 to 25, and then you guys if you could have a look at revelation 21 verses 1 to 4 that would be brilliant so just have a read of that note down anything you learn about new creation then we'll come back and we'll hear some feedback from you yeah amos 9 verses 11 to 15 yep you were romans 8 18 to 25 and um if you read anything that doesn't sound like new creation i might have got the passage wrong but i think i've got them there Okay, should we bring our highlights uh, together? So um, what, I'd, what I'd like to do is just, again, there's, there's no kind of, you don't have to put your hand up or, or anything here. It was kind of first come first. So just throw out things that you notice in your passage or like ideas that emerge in terms of new creation. Now, just to say these are obviously all pictures of trying to grasp something that is far more amazing and bigger than anyone can actually describe, which might explain why... I don't know. You get some, such as the Zechariah passage. You get the idea of, oh, and people will live till very really old. And you think, wait, a minute, I thought it was eternal life. Actually, there's there's symbolism and pictures going on of something far greater than you can possibly describe. So, um, any anyone want to throw out some stuff they thought that was that was amazing? I loved that bit. And a brave first self Restoring. Yeah. Yeah. So you had the um, the Amos one. Yeah. So passage about restoring in in that context, restoring stuff to to israel but it also talks about um the idea of the nations being gathered in restoration is a key thing actually in new creation it's it's not a oh flip plan b we did a physical creation and now uh, it's all ruined let's just go down the the uh, i don't know caricature heart um, i don't know floating on on the clouds with a heart kind of thing you know, god says wait i created a good creation i'm going to restore restore forever forever what what has been lost excellent anything else
1: we get at the beginning of the bit of desire um, a feast of rich food, mm. a feast followed by wine, and then yeah. again immediately after a rich food followed by of, <laughs> of well uh, of aged wine, yeah. well refined. So again, you've got the you got like things we've got now yeah. and that we love and
0: we de- kind of delight in, it, yeah. and it's powerful. Yeah, it it feels very real, doesn't it? It's, yeah. it it doesn't feel kind of. Otherworldly. There's a there's a sense in which you're reading it, thinking, this this sounds amazing. The idea of having a feast with God. Um, I think that's yeah, that's that's important. I think this isn't. In 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 one sense, this is something that we can't grasp in terms of what it actually looks like. But in another sense, we can. It's because we experience what it is to know joy and to delight in feasting and having food and spending time with friends. You just think of that. And remove all evil and all sin. And I think we're probably starting to get a bit of a grasp on what new creation will be like and put God right at the centre, most importantly. You think that's going to be phenomenal? Do you have something else you wanted to say? Well,
1: I'm just kind of like reading through the verses. Mm. And it's like after that, which sounds quite attractive to me, mm. um, we get an evil swallow up with this mountain, of people covering those castles, mm. all the peoples, and he will swallow up dead. So yeah, there's that feast and there's that celebration. But mm. We haven't even got to the good stuff
0: Yeah. Mm. that comes in versus the follow. Yeah. Uh, swallow. Yeah, there's that, that picture of he's, he's going to take away the, the covering that goes over all nations, almost like you've got this covering of death that goes over all, na- over all nations. He's going to swallow that up, he's going to take it away, and instead we're going to have a massive banquet. Um, yeah, it's going to be cool. <laughs> Again, it's, it's kind of hinting at something that's even better than it, than it is, but it, it, just the, the imagery that's used is appealing in itself Any any anything else people have picked up on But the Old Testament guys so far um, anyone from the New Testament passages want to have anything well we have the passage in Romans that talks about creation
1: like running mm. and in the page um, of and um, Claire made the kind of point about how uh, you go somewhere beautiful in creation now yeah. See just how spectacular creation mm. is. But this passage talks about
0: how much more mm. glorious it's gonna be. Yeah. Like how much more glorious can it be? Yeah. Of whales and mm. sea, just mountains that yeah, yeah. you see glory it's gonna be infinitely more glorious than that. Yeah, it's hard to believe that current creation is under a curse when you look at yeah. the Himalayas. Yeah. <laughs> okay, yeah, that's gonna be lifted one day. I think it's like, it's kind of that thing, you, you, you talk about all of this amazing stuff that happens and you think, well, surely that, like, looking forward to that when like looking forward to that is bad. Surely we should only be looking forward to the fact of actually we're gonna spend eternity with God. It doesn't matter that there is an amazing creation. And I think actually, I think the way God chooses to relate to his people and to love them is in part actually by putting them in, a universe where he delights in his creation we delight in his creation you're going to look at these amazing landscapes and your response is going to be to worship god i think it's it's not like you've got oh wow delighting in creation on one hand and then delighting in god i think actually may, uh, maybe new creation is where we mo- we will most fully understand what it means to delight in god's creation and in god at the same time i think it's yeah any maybe one or two other people who want to throw up anything in Zechariah, um, yep. it says like, it's like marvellous in the sight of the people that, mm.
1: like, should it be marvellous mm. to the Lord? Like, is that just because, like, God, this is the way God's always intended it to be? Yeah. So, like, actually it's, like, not does of the
0: yeah, it's like, this is what I wanted my creation to be. Yeah, it looks amazing to us, but it's kind of like, I, I have this in mind all the time already. I love that Zechariah passage, the bit where it talks about the young, the kids playing in the street and the old old people sitting in the corner with their walking stick. And again, I don't think, I don't think that means that, I know some people will, I don't know, have to walk with a walking stick for all eternity and some people will be kids for all eternity. I think, again, it's a picture of, it's a picture of a place where war doesn't exist anymore which is incredibly powerful at the time that zechariah would have been written it's there's no war it's like imagine a, a london estate where there's loads of gang violence that's gone on where suddenly you've got kids playing around and old people sitting outside and having a chat kind of that's the kind of idea that we're, we're thinking of yeah in fact i think the the, the mica passage has the idea did you have the was it the passage about beating the um spears into plowshares and pruning hooks yeah i think that's a relatively well-known, well-known passage. Um, on that day, they will beat their spears into into pr- um, pruning hooks and their swords into ploughshares. Um, the fact that there will be no war for those of us who haven't experienced war, kind of in our generation, I suppose. If we've lived in the UK most of our life, we won't have seen war on our doorstep. If you live in a war-torn country, the idea that there is actually going to be peace and no war—imagine what that feels like, where you're living with the threat of the Assyrians might come around the corner and kill us that's not going to be the case anymore there's going to be and I think that does that passage end with the idea of someone sitting under his fig tree and under his vineyard you can only sit in peace under your own fig tree or in your own vineyard if you're sure that you're not going to get an army comes down the road and puts the whole thing up in flames so it's just it's it's going to be beyond description so this is all again this is all These are all pictures that tell us something about what new creation will be like. But I think it's important to emphasize it's not going to be a completely, completely different kind of creation to this one. It's about restoring what this, perhaps, I mean, when it talks about new creation, I wonder to what extent it's talking about restoring this earth to what it should be and to what extent it's a brand new recreated earth and not, there could be hints of both in the New Testament. But we're talking about something that we can look at and think that is... That that is the kind of thing where I don't know a fruitful, joyful God wants to ble- wants to bless his creation with that kind of fruitfulness. Um, it's going to be amazing. And a, a passage that I didn't get anyone to read out um, just because it was a bit bit longer. And it would have been a bit confusing for people reading it. Poor things would have been like, why, why have you given me the passage about people measuring stuff in Revelation? But in Revelation, it talks about an angel saying to John, go and measure the city, the city which is kind of seems to me that is this picture of the people of God, but at the same time seems to be this picture of the whole of new creation. Um, and it says, go and measure the city. And it says the, the city lies four square, its width and its height and its depth exactly the same. And does anyone know what, that's, that's a cube, anyone know what, building in the bible was in the shape of a cube the of yeah the holy of holies in solomon's temple as far as i know is the only building in the bible that is shaped as a cube it's a way of saying fundamentally the thing that makes new creation new creation is the fact that god's presence will dwell there the whole of new creation will be absolutely saturated with the presence of god we'll see him face to face we'll see the risen ascended jesus and um, we'll get to so spend eternity with him he'll wipe away every tear from our eyes I'm sure there'll be lots of tears of happiness but there will be no tears of sadness in, uh, in new creation so it's, it's going to be amazing and I think when you increasingly get what our hope is it changes the way you live in the present yeah. where you think for the sake of the kind of fruitfulness and joy and glory that we are going to inherit I am happy to actually inconvenience myself and if necessary suffer for the sake of the gospel because this is not my end goal this is not this is not our home ultimately our home is god new creation so there we go there's well there's a bit of a scratching the surface of new creation just quickly before we do and um, a few questions just a couple of book plugs those of you who want to read a bit more on this. Uh, these are two books that are on the book of Revelation, which um, have, obviously, Revelation has a lot to do with the future and the end times, even though it's not exhaustively about that, but it's probably the most confusing of all of the books to do with the end times. Um, there's a book called by Verne Poythress, P-O-Y-T-H-R-E-S-S, called The Returning King, um, which I have not read, but Steph told is brilliant, so I will trust that it's a good book. And then a book that I have read called um, The Lamb, the Beast, and the Devil by John Hosier. Um, That is a really simple but really good introduction to the book of Revelation. So if you're thinking, I'd like to understand a bit more of the symbolism and language that goes on in Revelation, um, those are two really good books to get your hands on. Um, And I I think, obviously, the the most recommended book, I'd say, would be this one, um, the Bible. Read... We, I think this is so important that we actually study this. It's not just a strange. I, I, I say it's not just a strange thing, as if it is. It's it's not a strange, weird thing that some weird people decide to study. This is actually something that is meant to motivate us in the way that we live. So it's so important that we do that. So that's me finished talking. At least not at least talking. Not in response to your questions. Should we finish with a bit of Q and A then? If there were any other questions that you wanted to talk through. I have a question. Yep. Yeah.
1: It said
0: something like, "We, um, not all of us will sleep, but we'll all be changed." Oh yeah, the, in First Corinthians 15, oh, sorry, that was yeah. yeah. Um, so yes, yeah, so it says, um, "I tell you a mystery: not all of us will sleep. Sleep there is a, used as a euphemism for for death. So in, uh, for, for Christians, it's the idea of actually, you sleep. If you go to sleep, you're going to wake up again. So it's kind of, it, it's a little bit. like uh, We have euphemisms, euphemisms for death. So oh, they've passed away." But actually, in this case, it's, there's more significance to it than just a way of not saying they died because we don't like using the word death. But the idea of every, we won't all sleep, which means we're not all going to die, but we will all be changed. What that means is there will be certain people who are alive at the second coming of Jesus. They obviously won't die because they will be alive at his return. But everyone, whether or not they get resurrected or whether they are alive at the return of Jesus, will be changed. So they'll be transformed. So, technically speaking, not every single human being in history will be raised from the dead. Some of them will just be immediately transformed into into the, the likeness of Christ. Um, does that make sense? Yeah. Yep. Yeah? Yeah. Um, oh, so, yeah, oh I will sorry. Yeah, I'll come back. No, that's a, that's all right. I'll, I'll come. We'll come back in a second. Yeah. Um, you know,
1: when it talks about um, the torturing of the people. So Jesus comes back, and then the Christians like go to Jesus, hmm. and there's like all this torturing that happens, and the people still don't repent. So. Um, because they're not repenting I'm assuming yeah. that they're
0: not like the lukewarm Christians yeah so, uh, they, okay. so they still have like a set of did you ask that question on the no. server is not it now? okay? Yeah. Um so I think what's going on there so basically there's a passage in I think it's either Re- Revelation 7 or 10 where um, it's the it's this idea that there's a time where people will seek death but won't find it and they'll be um, kind of I think that particular passage so there are in in revelation there are three um sets of seven so you get some seven seals seven trumpets and seven bowls of wrath that get poured out on the earth and i think those are ways of looking at the whole of church history or the whole of history since the resurrection of jesus in very broad perspectives from heaven's point of view and so i think what's being referred to there i i think is a way of um referring to the fact that there are people in the world who. Um, however much um, however much opportunity they get to repent will still not repent and turn to him so i, I don 't think that 's a way of referring i don 't think that 's referring to christians i think that 's referring to those who don 't don 't repent um, I don 't think that 's referring to a thing that happens when Christ returns though I think th- all of those seven things that happen each time so the seven seals, the seven trumpets I think this is one of the seven trumpets. Um, I think is a way of referring to stuff that happens before the return of Jesus. And so I think it's a broad, brushstroke way of saying one of the things that happens, not necessarily at a specific time in history, but generally, is that people will be given opportunity after opportunity after opportunity to repent, but they still refuse to turn turn to God. Does that make sense? And so the imagery of the idea of they, um, they'll seek death, but they still won't repent is, almost, I think, a way of highlighting just how... Um, tenacious they are in refusing to repent. It's not a kind of oh we never knew. It's a we just do not want to turn to worship God. Does that make sense? Yeah, so I think not
1: just them that go to just even still people that do know about God but they're not, like, really, like, given
0: their life. Yeah, so I think it's a way of highlighting that well it especially in the place in the in the situation of those people but I think generally the the New Testament understanding is that um, at least in general terms that humanity is left without excuse and I think that might be a slightly different way of looking at that idea that there's no no one's no one's going to be standing there saying wait a minute I had no idea whatsoever that's a it's it's actually from heaven's perspective heaven's looking at it and saying they're refusing to repent as opposed to they never knew about it so they didn't have a chance that may don't know if you well, yeah. I think that's probably what yeah. it is.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think the other thing is as well is that if you if you read the book of Revelation chronologically, you can a real pitfall because mm. it can feel it can feel like Jesus comes back a few times. You <laughs> can feel, you know, you can, But I think if you read it cyclically, yeah. cycles that are then repeated, and are then repeated, that are different ways of illustrating the church age in the history, mm. and then it makes a no lot more sense. Because what you find yourself doing is, oh, okay, so Jesus just come. And now these people are still not repenting more. Where are the believers? If Jesus come. where are the believers? You can get... Mm. But if, so there are different ways of interpreting the book. But I think the, the that the one way that makes the makes most sense mm. is like Dan was saying with these cycles of judgment or whatever, mm. that you understand them as different ways of explaining the same mm. thing going on. Yeah, mm.
0: okay. It's a little bit like Action Replay with, I don't know, the... Yeah. When we when we won yesterday against um, um, I've forgotten who it was now <laughs> Sweden that was it yeah IKEA there we go um, where um, we um, you 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 score and you see the same goal from lots of different angles and I think it's a similar kind of thing that's going on it's like oh, let's look at it from this particular perspective this particular perspective um, and yeah I think that's what that's what I was talking about I said IKEA it's because there's so many IKEA jokes going on on Facebook now <laughs> about beating the Swedes um, let's do we're technically out of time let's do are we okay two more questions yeah okay That's. us for oh was the, you had, did have a question didn't you no okay Andy go for it uh, I think no in the most in the most absolute sense of the term so this was one thing that Christians were mocked for in the second century because often what would happen is Romans would persecute them and when they if someone was killed for the sake of the gospel they'd often burn them as a way, because Christians believe in resurrection, so like, "Well, we'll burn you. How's your God going to raise that?" And the second-century Christians said, "Well, wait a minute. God can, like, of course, God can raise us even if we've been burnt." So, no, in that sense, I don't think it does make any difference. Um, that being said, I think the assumption that cremation and burial are like it, it was almost kind of an unthought, unthought process. I think does reveal something about the way we, the way we think about the body and the importance of the. Body. so i i don't think it really matters in the sense that like god can do what it can, can do can raise someone if they've been burnt to a crisp if they've been eaten by an animal or if they've been buried but i think it's interesting that early christians did tend to bury their dead rather than burn them and burning was a very pagan thing almost as a way of saying look her, you can't be raised now um but i don't think it's a it's not like a i mean my grandparents were my well my granddad was cremated i like wouldn't be going oh my goodness he can't be raised now I think that's just but I think sometimes stuff we do has a certain amount of symbolism in it um, which I think sometimes burial can have that symbolism but I don't think it would be a reason that someone has to be buried yeah well let's face it it's mm. just as hard to
1: create a resurrection but yeah a skeleton yeah as it does, <laughs> yeah 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 but I think it's an interesting point mm. in terms of sometimes this thing can highlight our thoughtlessness mm more than actually the thing in and of itself yeah. so yeah, mean, yeah. it's good thinking yeah.
0: about it there's a really helpful blog post on thinktheology.co.uk um, by a guy called Matt Hosier if you just search for on that website Matt Hosier and then burial or cremation um, which again he's not making the point that God can't raise people from there but he's making that, that specific point he says I think it the fact that we default to cremation can reveal a bit of our the fact that we don't always think through the actually the importance of the body, when it comes to the, the gospel, even though it's obviously, yeah, a, a skeleton being raised and a, and a cremated person being raised is still just as difficult. But, okay, let's have one final question. Uh, oh, oh dear!
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs> oh, you don't. Let's. You did ask a question earlier, so um, what? So I go for what it. I was, I just been reading something earlier
1: with a friend yesterday, and what it is is. Who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven? But the one who does oh, is that it? Yeah. The one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and -hmm. cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will I declare to them. I never knew you apart mm. from your, your workers or lawlessness. Mm. Um, so what I wanted to ask was how do we know as Christians that you know we have a um, safe
0: place mm. in heaven. Like, that's a good question. We've got a traditional hot topics of finishing with the hardest <laughs> question at the part, haven't we? Um I think that's a, I think that, that passage is a scary one. Yeah. Because I think what it shows is um it's not It's not the stuff that people perceive externally that is that is necessarily the thing that counts. So you, I mean, look, how how on earth it works that people who aren't believers are able to do miracles in Christ's name and so on. But I think what that passage does reveal is, um, it's not the fact that they cast out demons or that they healed the sick that that gives them a place in heaven. It's the fact that they know God. And so I think the the important thing there is. That when when we're looking at ourselves and thinking so, if your question is about how do we how can we have a guarantee, the guarantee is the Holy Spirit that has been given to us, and that's not in that's not primarily in in the form of oh the Holy Spirit has been being given to me now therefore I can cast demons out and yeah, I've got assurance I'm I'm a I'm a real Christian now, it's the Holy Spirit speaking to us in our hearts and and assuring us God's my Father, um, and I think. That, I think, is, is the, one of the important um, take-backs of that particular passage, that what is it we look at? We, I think we look at our lives and think, do I love God? Do I know God? Do I, do I love him more every, every day? Like, doesn't mean am I, am I absolutely beyond reproach and never sin or what, whatsoever, but it's, I think it's, this, it's be wary of putting your confidence in what you do rather putting your confidence in who you are who you love, who you've put your trust in and, and so on, but that is a, a scary passage I think it is a passage that should make us think, so I don't think it's one that you think, oh that doesn't apply to me, I think it's one that you look at and think, okay I, I, I'm not, I'm not going to base my eternal security on whether I've cast a demon out in the last month, I'm going to base it on is God's, has God's Holy Spirit moved me to basically to cry out to him as Father and I think that's the biblically the the way we I'll, probably,
1: yeah. I'll probably push back a little bit. Just, just not going mm. to be controversial, <laughs> but I think the passage itself talks about obedience to the Father's will. Yeah. You know, that's that's what you read, isn't it? Not everyone who says Lord, Lord, but those who do the will of my Father in mm. heaven. And I do think there's some. I do think there is an there is there is an assurance that comes when we submit our will to Him. Not mm. that we do lots of stuff, but that we say Lord. I'm not going to just sing the songs mm. and say the words. But I actually want to. I want to do your will, mm. you know. And you know, the, the, the will of God is massively is, is about our. We tend to think of the will of God as, oh, does he want me to go? Does he want me to go to the North Pole and preach the gospel? And we, that, <laughs> we tend to think it in that way. Whereas biblically, more the will of God is like keeping keeping away from immorality and mm. living a pure, living pure, and that sort of stuff. So, I do think there's something in there as well about. Um, the assurance of the holy spirit is 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 also linked with the choices that we make, mm. because if we if we choose disobedience it's we, we, we mess with our conscience, you know what I mean, and we struggle to feel the assurance mm. so we 're not justified by our works at all. we know that but something about that heart of obedience is a sign that we are, we are born again. Mm. The other interesting thing is that jesus said i didn't." he didn 't say you didn 't know me, he says I never knew you mm. which is fascinating it's fascinating I never knew you so one of the things I do is I just try to make one of my practices is Lord I just want you to know everything that's going on I don't want to hide anything from you I don't want you ever to be able to say you didn't know me do you know what I mean I don't want to ever be in that position where I'm kind of because knowing the Bible is about experience it's about relationship experience it's not about so much about just the fact it's about knowing is is a word they use for sexual union in the Bible I never knew you Adam knew his wife Eve and they had a baby so it's experiential. So I try to say, Lord, I just, I just want to make sure that I'm walking in that place of transparency. Mm. Not hiding, not pretending. I, I just want to keep bringing myself before you. Not in an overly introspective way. I think it's just healthy. Um, that, that I, don't, I never want him to be able to say, I never knew you. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. I think, Lord, I don't want to give you grounds for that. I want to be mm. totally who I am before you and, and allow you to, to, um, to have, all, have all that I am. Mm. You know, sort of walks and all. Sometimes it can make you feel a bit insecure because you think, well, I'm, you know, I'm not, I'm not perfect. I, at least I want you to know me. Mm. Mm. Yeah. 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 Good.